Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So we have a question for you. Do you struggle with imposter syndrome? Or have you ever been told by someone like a superior or a sponsor or mentor that you need to increase your confidence? And are you one of those people that dreads the idea of faking it till you make it? Does that somehow seem dishonest for you? Well, today we want to propose the idea that the problem may not be your confidence as much as it is your definition of confidence. And that's what we're going to talk about today, a new way to define confidence along with a new set of practices that are going to reinforce that. With me today is Dr. Suzanne Doyle Morris. Suzanne is the author of a very recent book, The Con Job, Getting Ahead for Competence in a World Obsessed with Confidence. And I think you'll get where the stream of this one is going to go from that that headline. Suzanne has been helping professional women get the roles they want and the recognition they deserve. And I should add that while her focus has been on women, our conversation today is going to be just as applicable to men as it is to women. I will say Suzanne's had some great success because women in over 50 organizations have moved into senior roles in Europe, UK, and the US. And she's worked mostly in STEM, legal, and financial services. She has her PhD from Cambridge University. And if that's not enough. She's written two additional books, one called Beyond the Boys Club, Achieving Career Success as a Woman Working in a Male-Dominated Field, and Female Breadwinners, How They Make Relationships Work and Why They're the Future of the Modern Workplace. I should also add that she has a great YouTube channel called Inclusic, Inclusic, I-N-C-L-U-S-I-Q, and maybe by the end of the show, Suzanne, on how to pronounce that correctly, with lots <laughs> of tips and advice. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. Wanda, I'm so excited, particularly with your audience, because it's Global Professionals, which is very cool, uh, because I was able to interview some great people from nearly a dozen different countries to try to understand what confidence meant to them. And it wasn't as straightforward as I thought it would be when I started. Fabulous. That's what a great introduction it was, that one. So, you know, you've written two other books, and I happen to know that both of them have been quite successful. Why did you decide that you needed to do the research behind this one to write this one? What was the driving force there? Okay. So, I mean, you know, I've been aware of your work for a long time, and you and I face probably a very similar question when we when we start coaching somebody or consulting. And one of the things people often say to me is literally the first thing is I'll say, what would you like from our time together? And they will often say, well, you know, I would like more confidence. And if we all accept that as kind of just being very straightforward, it sounds like we all know what we're talking about. But when I started to unpeel with my clients what that really means, particularly for women who work in male-dominated fields, what I realized that confidence really meant to them was actually, I want more opportunities. I want to be heard in meetings. I want more recognition for my ideas and my work. And, And so I realized that that kind of Confidence was almost like this throwaway term people was people were using 
to hide a whole host of other other expectations people had about their lives and their careers. And I thought, let me unpick this. Wow, what a great I, uh, what a great way to approach that. I never thought about it that way, but I agree with you. Men and women around the world, when we get behind closed doors, the number one mm-hmm. thing on their mind, among you know dealing with somebody who's a problem for them, is how do I increase my confidence? I need more confidence. Completely. And I find, Suzanne, as you know, that no one struggles with confidence when they're in their zone of expertise, when they know they know what they're talking right. about, confidence does mm-hmm. isn't an issue. It's when I'm out of that immediate comfort zone that we start to question the confidence. And then I like your idea that maybe it's not confidence as much as it is, I want these other outcomes, more opportunities mm. to be heard and more recognition. Right, exactly, exactly. It is out of that comfort zone. And I think it's it's about your expertise, but it's also about who is listening and, more importantly, who is judging me in that moment. So I could be the most expert person at that table on whatever topic we're speaking of, but if I'm being judged by a group of people who look, look nothing like me, who are from a different country to me, who don't get the, the kind of the nuances of what I'm saying, then I will start to doubt myself. Um, and I think that's really problematic. So, so realistically, for me, it's about those things. It's not just saying it's enough to be an expert in something and, and expect that to give you the confidence, which in, it, it will help. But it's also about who's doing the judging of that, what that confidence should look like. Okay. Now, presumably, who's doing the judging applies as much to any degree of separation. So that could be that I'm in a country where the dominant language is not my native language. Or Mm. it could be that I'm largely from some other country and some other culture. And even though I might be living in the headquarters office, I don't feel like I'm quite as up to speed with the headquarters culture. I mean, it could be any number of things, presumably. Is that true? It completely could. In fact, you remind me of a woman that I interviewed for the book. Her name was Celine. She worked for an FMCG company, you know, fast-moving consumer goods, and she was based in Germany, and she told me, she goes, I used to think, she'd worked in other companies before, she'd worked at PwC and a few others, and she said, I used to listen in all our group calls, and I thought, the people who spoke English, gosh, they were just so smart. They just knew what they were talking about all the time. And it was years later that I started to recognize that it wasn't that they were any smarter than me. They just knew English better. (laughs) They could command certain phraseology faster than me. Whereas what was fascinating for Celine was that English was actually her third language. Now, given that that was the language in which she was being paid to work, it's amazing because I certainly couldn't do my job in another language, but she was doing it in this third language. And she started realizing that she couldn't just assume these people had better ideas or more confident. The confidence came in some ways out of the fact that they were just native speakers. And that was one of the interesting nuances I found when writing this book. Okay, I can believe that one. I reminds I have to tell a story on this one because I have been so fascinated by this story. It's very consistent with what you're saying. This is a guy. He happens to be male. Male, jeez. He happens to be Japanese, working in mm-hmm. Japan, and in a client-serving company. 
and they were looking, the senior executive team were looking at giving him a big promotion, kind of one of those career-breaking promotions. And they kept holding Mm -hmm. him off and holding him off and holding him off. And the comment around the senior table was, you know, we just don't think he has the gravitas. Like he's just, he just needs another Uh year, another bit of polishing. And they weren't saying confidence so much as they were saying that present, that you know, command of the room kind of persona. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. were about to pass him over again for this promotion yet one more time. Loved him, thought he was doing great work, all good things. They just thought this is the thing that's missing. It needs a little bit more on this one. Before they finally sign on the dotted line, one of the people in the room, another guy, happens to speak up and says, hold on, before we do this, he's Japanese, right? Working in Japan, We're judging him on his ability to speak English and work in an English-speaking culture. How many of us could do that work in Japanese? (laughs) And how do we know what his level of presence is in Japanese? Because we can't understand it. Maybe we are to rethink. (laughs) And actually, to, to their credit, you know, go ahead and give him the promotion he had been seeking for so long. Mm, Judgment. Mm, completely. So again, this is this book for me is almost a love story to people like that guy who is competent. And in this case, your story, he was lucky because he happened to have an advocate who stepped back and said, what are we really judging him on? But I think those conversations just don't happen frequently enough. Yeah. And what I think we do is we say, oh, you know, yes, that Japanese uh, colleague is very, very able. He's very competent. He's a safe pair of hands, which is a phrase I hear a lot, but he doesn't have, like you said, the presence, the gravitas, the confidence, and that's hiding, like just a whole myriad of assumptions as to what leadership looks like, and the further I got in writing this book, the more I realized our definitions of what confidence should look like, well, at least for me, for the companies that I work with, which tend to be based in Western headquarters that are based in either North North America or Europe, they tend to be on a very male, uh, well-off, white version of able-bodied, heterosexual, you know, a very slim margin of people because those are the type of people who lead them. So the behaviors that those guys show tend to be the way we think confidence looks like. But actually, that's really not helping those guys either. Um, and I'm sure we could talk about that as well later. But, but essentially, everyone else who doesn't fit that category, when they are judged for confidence, we tend to judge them less favorably, even when they show the exact same behaviors. Yeah. So it was really rich um, to kind of get into this. And I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, I just I need to unpeel yet another layer. And, you know, it was fantastic. And I was really honored to do so. That I can see why you would be so much pulled to doing this kind of work because I do, and we'll mm. come back to talk about this one. I do think our understanding is a very narrow slice of behavior that we tend mm. to look at people who, and I'm going to, you know, Thomas, uh, Thomas Chamora Promuzek has also written about this one recently. Mm. But my observation is we tend to like and prefer people as leaders who have that you know, super hungry, power-driven, um, mm-hmm. I want it, give it to me, I can make it happen, restlessness mm-hmm. almost. And that that becomes our definition of competent and ready, mm-hmm. 
quote unquote, to use another one we use in talent management, and that we tend to overlook or discount people who are more comfortable leading from behind or from within Mm -hmm. or pushing other people forward or orchestrating in different ways in order to make things happen. All right. Before we leave this, though, I want to come back to something you said, that the big issue about confidence in your research was about who was listening and who was judging and whether Mm -hmm. that person was similar or different to the um, candidate who was questioning confidence. How much Mm -hmm. is judging, in your opinion, about self-judgment? Self-judgment. That's a really interesting question. So I think that if you judge yourself, um, based on, essentially based on that same model. And the, the problem is, even if you are not that model of person, um, then if you see nothing but leaders who look very differently to you, you will judge yourself lacking. Um, and what's interesting is, if you are that person, but you're very junior, you will see, but the leaders above you kind of look like you, you will judge your confidence more positively. I'll tell you a, a short story. Actually, I, I talk about the beginning of the book, which is that the reason I got into this is I did a piece of work for a big law firm. They couldn't get very many women into partnership level, didn't know what was going on. I said, what do you think is the issue? And so I talked to the, main, the, the senior partner, the managing partner, and they, and they said, you know, I just don't think the women are very confident. So I ran focus groups with both men and women, sometimes separate from each other um, and sometimes together. And what was really interesting is that the men consistently said, uh, my question is, how confident was uh, were you that you'll get to partnership someday? These were senior associates. And most of them said, uh, the men all said, for the most part, yeah, yeah, I think I could, I, I think I could, I could be partner here. And what was interesting is the women by comparison, said, I'm confident I will get to partnership somewhere, but maybe not here. And what was interesting is senior leadership heard that as, I'm not confident as a woman, mm-hmm. whereas I was saying, actually, it's not that they're not confident, but they're not confident in what they, it's that they don't trust the system. The men are confident mm-hmm. because everybody at the top looks like them. <laughs> so they yeah. kind of get, get the sense that they belong but if you are okay. a woman who's in her 30s and you're looking at all the partnership and they're mostly guys and you're thinking, am I going to make partnerships? Then you may be a little less confident. And that's going back to that. How do I judge myself? Well, do people like you get ahead? Okay. <laughs> um, and if they don't, you may feel a little less certain, which will translate as being less confident. Okay. All right. So that gets then at one of my core beliefs and my question to you. So part one and part two is that every time you find yourself not or one degree of difference from what I call the dominant coalition, meaning the dominant style, Mm -hmm. however that is defined, Mm -hmm. let's say it's an engineering Mm -hmm. company and you're not engineering trained, anything that it takes Mm -hmm. a hit, your confidence takes a hit. And if I add two or three of those, your confidence is going to take a big hit. So one Mm -hmm. is, do you see that or do you see a different pattern? I see that. Yeah, I completely see that 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 really matters. I mean, I refer to that almost like a bullseye where, you know, I call it the status quo, the status quo, the people that we talked about, white heterosexual male, native English speaker for the companies where I work, um, able-bodied, well, extroverted, that's another one. 
tends to get ahead for most organizations, and also from an advantaged background. Um, so I have to be wealthy, but I have to be somebody who was able to go to university maybe and you know, can, can get ahead that way. And what's really interesting is I want to be very clear. That doesn't mean that if you are all of those characteristics, you are going to have a successful life, but it means you will be statistically closer to being, to being what we think of as leadership. And you're very right. The further you are out from that bullseye, the more your confidence can diminish simply because you don't okay. look like what leaders tend to look like. Um, and you'll feel that, but so will the people around you, and they won't judge you. You know, you, you know, if you want to think about what a leader looks like, I mean, freaking just Google it. I mean, you type in leader, yeah. you will find lots of images of men, often, most yeah. often white men. Um, yeah. So if that's your dominant, uh, the dominant cultural uh, look, and the further you are from that, the you know the less likely you'll feel that that's a role for you. Okay. Yeah. However, that dominant is defined. I like that idea of the status quo, and I like the way you said mm-hmm. that it tends to be white, it tends to mm-hmm. be male, it tends to be extroverted. That's important. It tends to be English speaking mm-hmm. and from an advantaged background, and that kind of notion of what makes for leadership. And while we're on this, one of my pet peeves about a lot of the assessment work that we're doing, everyone's doing all over the world with really good intention. My worry is that we carry those qualities into our assessment and then we're not looking Mm. at some alternative models the way we are to be looking at it. Okay, so you have given me three reasons why you think confidence is a struggle. One is this, I don't feel that I fit in or I belong. And I judge mm-hmm. myself relative to the status quo or the dominant coalition. And I'm going to come up lacking because I'm not like them. Two is who is listening and how much confidence mm-hmm. I have in their ability to listen. And three is who is judging. And I think fourth mm-hmm. buried in that one is what are we judging the person on? Are there mm. any other reasons why you think confidence is um, such a challenge? I think that, you know, when we look at, I, I think the, the main concern I've got about confidence is going back to your example of the, the Japanese colleague, is that if people tell him he needs more gravitas, or more specifically, let's go to what we're talking about, confidence, that is a really easy excuse for leaders to use, because he's not getting ahead, but it's nothing to do with me as his manager, it's his problem. So it mm-hmm. means I don't have to lift a darn finger to help him access the right opportunities, to make the right introductions, to put her, him on bigger accounts. I don't have to do anything because it's essentially his issue. It's something he lacks. Mm-hmm. And I see that in, in a way with the companies I work with where they won't invest in the MBA programs or the advanced qualifications or whatever it is and people that they perceive lack confidence uh, or they'll wait until they have confidence but the irony, of course, is that if you're not investing in me, you're kind of also diminishing my confidence further right. while waiting right. for me to magically have, have it. 
Right, right. It's, I think it takes an enormous amount of fortitude to sit there and get rejected on a promotion that you wanted and wanted and told that it's a back of confidence and still hold yeah. on to your own self-belief in the middle of that and not just kind of give up and say, well, yeah, I don't have that gravitas thing. Okay, so yeah. let's shift because your hypothesis, so you did a bunch of research on this one. I just should underscore this. 12 countries interviewing a lot of people. Can you just kind of give me like the headline story of what you did to collect the data and the insights? Well, I interviewed 40 leaders from around the world. I mean, from Egypt, Singapore, um, you know, Chile. I went to Mexico. Actually, I didn't go to Mexico. Let's be very honest. I spoke to people from Mexico, but also the U.S. and certainly where I am based in the U.K., both in Scotland, but also down in England um, and Ireland. And what was interesting to me was just how frequently people talked about what was interesting is the question I first asked to people wasn't, what is confidence? I would say, what does confidence look like to you? How do you know someone is confident? And that's when they described the behaviors that I consider that very status quo element, that kind of bravado, that taking charge, pushing people to the side, really, um, you know, a lot of self-promotion. And that worries me, realistically, because self-promotion it doesn't really help any organizations. <laughs> so if you're individually self-promoting, that's, you know, it's a decent use of time and it will probably help you get ahead to a certain extent, but it's actually not an ultimately beneficial behavior. It's ultimately not hugely productive when you could be, you know, talking back to something you mentioned about 10 minutes ago, which is doing more to um, for the success of other people with whom you're um, with whom you're involved, to so leading your teams to make the most of them and really shouting their game. So I think that that's really you know the big concern I've got with this issue, and the reason I just felt so passionate about writing was is I think we overlook competence, um, and we spend far too much time rewarding people who do a good job at self talk, uh, but not much more necessarily. And that yeah. worries me. <laughs> so, and then okay. even when we do, and we quote unquote encourage those other people to be confident, well, we don't judge them very well when they do. So, let's go back to the socioeconomic um, difference. It was only when I moved to Britain that I learned that phrase about someone acting above their station mm-hmm. or pulling the tall puppies down. Um, or depending on where you live in the world, somebody acting big for their riches or big for their boots. <laughs> So when people from from disadvantaged backgrounds show confidence, that's the way we judge them. Not great. Um, equally, when we have people who are from ethnic minority backgrounds, um, and if you're from Latinx backgrounds and you show a lot of confidence, people tend to judge them as being fiery. People from African American or Black backgrounds will be described as angry. Um, And we've got a whole litany of words that we use to describe women who are showing confidence, everything from pushy and strident to bossy to, you know, just, I mean, gosh, certainly difficult. I mean, how much time do you have? (laughs) Because i got a whole list for you. I got those. The way we judge people unfairly. Yeah, I I agree that there's a dozen. Well, what we do is we judge people, and I think we don't judge them based on any observable behavior, and then we judge them on an abstract construct 
that we actually don't even know what we mean ourselves. So we're now even further away from actually looking at real behaviors that we could give feedback on or that we could alter or that we could improve. And I get on a real soapbox about that one. But I also find that when people have to talk themselves up, like I have to pick myself up and put myself forward and make that extra effort to show Mm -hmm. confidence, even when, you know, it's hard for me in this context because I, you know, I just have to work at it harder, that it's so easy to overdo it. Like you just got to miss some of the nuances in there. Completely understandable, but certainly easy to do. And I don't want to dwell on that one because what I want to dwell on is this whole notion about how else we should define confidence. Before I go there, you've done a lot of comparison Mm. about different cultures. You've said several times about more Western cultures like UK or North American headquartered companies. Mm-hmm. What did you find about this view of confidence when we get into less classic Western cultures? Okay. So what was interesting to me, when I talked to people who had worked in Japan, to go back to your example, um, mm-hmm. one of the ways that they thought confident people behaved was more around self-control. Uh-huh. Um, and that was certainly not something that I think we give enough credence to in the West. Um, that kind of, that sense of, okay, I'm going to keep this together. I, I don't need to draw attention to myself. It's much more important for other people to talk about how good I am. That's where I'll derive my confidence for, from. But, but talking myself up is, is definitely not a social norm. I remember a woman I interviewed um, at the BBC here in Britain. Uh, she's a journalist. And she said, God almighty, I keep being told I need to talk myself up more, self-promote. She said, but I was, you know, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm from Iran originally, you know, and in the Persian culture, you know, we've got loads of, of sayings about this. And she said the favorite one in my family was that empty barrels make the most noise. So I love that because what she was saying is essentially, it really, if you have the people who have the, li- the least to say, <laughs> to often do the most talking. And she said, so when people tell me I need to talk more, it feels really disingenuous. And I know that you're very keen, Wanda, on authenticity in leadership. Right. So we are literally asking people to do something that goes against the grain for them. Um, similarly, with people in South America, and again, there was a big difference, but what was interesting was one of the women talked about how, she, how she'd been at a leadership conference, um, and they'd had two speakers from North America come, and one was Canadian, and one was American, and the American was a self-made millionaire, and he certainly let you know from the beginning that he was a self-made millionaire and, and, and did his whole spiel, and she said he was entertaining, but most people were deeply uncomfortable with him um, and just did not, he, he did not, hit the, he didn't identify with the audience at all. They, they really did not like him, whereas the Canadian just did nothing but talk about how amazing his company was and the people he'd been lucky enough to hire throughout, and she said the audience completely warmed to him. And in fact, he engaged back with the audience rather than just doing his 30-minute soapbox. He, he threw out questions to us and started asking us questions, and people loved him. And, okay. and she said and that, was, you know, that was a difference. So in a weird way, that's almost three different examples right there. Um, and, and I just hadn't really thought about that because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I live in the U.K. I had been born in Australia, raised for most of my life in the U.S., 
But I, because of the Western influence of me, I, I kind of thought, well, confidence looks one way. Um, mm-hmm. But as I, as I unpicked, I saw it was far wider. Um, yeah. and, and that's something I don't think we do enough to, to look at. I think this is just such a hugely important concept, especially when we're looking at global companies or even smaller mm-hmm. companies working in global context. Either yeah. way, and recognizing that one country's or culture's description of confidence can be the polar opposite of another country's or culture's expectations of confidence. Um, And I don't think we account that. I don't think we account for that in our talent assessment or in our talent identification or in our own refinement of how do I present myself to that group in this other culture or in our collaborations Mm -hmm. on our teams. I mean, there's a whole host of ways in which this impacts our performance straight up Mm -hmm. right at the start. So I just think that's that's really important. It is. I mean, it's that's and something we just don't. You're right. We we don't we don't take our assessments with it, and it takes a very cognizant person even to do that. There was a woman I interviewed. She's a VP at Procter and Gamble, P&G in Singapore, and she said some of the most confident people I know, she said, are Japanese women, and and she said that sounds odd. But what's interesting is that what I discovered. Uh, she she herself was from um, from India, but she said. Most women don't, most married women in Japan don't work for pay. But she said the mere fact that these women are in the workforce means that they are going against the grain, um, which is something we're going to talk about, I think, when we start to look at how do we redefine confidence. But she said, so for me, they're hugely confident because while they're not talking their game up, just the fact that they go in every day and do a great job for me and love being part of it, I know the cultural uh, sidestepping they must have to do with not just their families, but their families-in-law and everyone else who thinks it's just odd that they're working at all. Mm -hmm. And it's even a slight against the family, as if the family cannot afford to keep them. Right, right. I certainly have seen that in Japan. Okay, Mm. this is a perfect spot, Suzanne, to take a pause (laughs) And we've got a lot of things to come back to. One in particular has to do with how you would like to define confidence, a new way of thinking Mm. about that. And in particular, I want to talk about what do you do, and I want to talk about this fake it till you make it kind of advice. So my guest today Mm -hmm. is Dr. Suzanne Doyle-Morris, the book, The Con Job, Getting Ahead for Competence in a World Obsessed with Confidence. And I will also remind you that Suzanne's YouTube channel is Inclusique. And you can pick up a free chapter of this book at https colon slash slash inclusique.com slash books dot html. And we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? 
For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Dr. Suzanne Doyle-Morris. The book we've been talking about is The Con Job. Getting Ahead for Competence in a World Obsessed with Confidence. And we have been talking about this idea that we have a fairly narrow definition of what confidence looks like. Not necessarily what our definition of it is, but how it appears in the world. And as Suzanne has just clearly pointed out, our definitions of confidence are often culturally centered so that those of us that live in the Western world or in Western headquartered companies have a definition. But if we move to other cultures that are quite different, there will be different definitions of what confidence looks like. And that has a huge impact on how we find talent and promote talent and what we do with ourselves as well. Now, I should say you can get a free chapter of Suzanne's book, at the following web address, and this time I will pronounce it correctly, https colon slash slash includes I-N-C-L-U-S-I-Q dot com slash books dot html. Um, you can also tune into Suzanne's chapters and advice and regular tidbits at her YouTube channel, which is Includes IQ. So inclusive without the IV and IQ at the end of it, in case that didn't come across to you. <laughs> so let's go to Suzanne. I want to now hear, so we were talking about what's wrong with our definitions. I want to know how you think we should be defining? How, how should we be thinking about this construct called confidence? Okay, so for me, when I looked back at the interviews that I'd done, I thought, what do these people, you know, what is the theme, what are the themes that they're talking about? I found three, essentially. So the first one is people have the courage of their convictions. Now, that sounds fairly straightforward. We all think that we know what that means. It can sound fairly grandiose. But I think also we need to give credit to people who experience, express it in similar ways, so, but actually very important ways. So, for example, I interviewed a guy named Sandy. He's based here in Scotland, and he had a very promising legal career. And he said, you know, by the time I was senior associate, I was ambitious. Um, but at some point, I was sitting down at my desk filling out a brief, and there was a list of all the partners in my office on my t- my desk and I played a game with myself and I looked at the list of all the partners and I went down and I put my finger next to each person's name and I said, 
That one never sees his children. That one's on his third marriage. That one's having an affair with someone in this office. (laughs) And this one looks deeply depressed all the time. And he said, it was like a light bulb moment. And I realized that while I had a promising career, I would never be happy here. None of them had lives like I wanted. And so he left. He left that field. And he luckily ended up becoming a very successful um, entrepreneurial leader here in Scotland. But what's interesting is that at the time, I could see why his colleagues may have judged him as lacking confidence. Because when people leave an industry or leave a field, uh, we tend to think of them as not being confident. Or, but realistically, he was listening to something. He was listening to the courage of his convictions. But we don't give much, we don't pay enough attention to that, I think, as part of this definition of confidence. The second way I think we need to describe it is about going against the grain. Um, and, you know, and I interviewed quite a few people who are from ethnic minority backgrounds who often will be told to be more confident. But what's really interesting to me, and, you know, I would talk to them and they said, but realistically, I'm working in a field where nobody looks like me. Um, I don't have any fellow Asian um, colleagues, and, you know, I'm the only person from my socioeconomic background, for example, who even went to university. So actually, the fact that I go into the office every day and I am in a minority of one, that in itself is a very confident move. Um, But again, not when we give much credence to when we think about what confidence looks like, but these people are going against the grain. And the third is self-awareness, this kind of absolute self-awareness. And I'll just share, can I share one story with you? Sure, yes, always. Okay, so there was a woman, um, and she was a leader, but when she told the story about her early on in her career, she had this boss, and he would walk the floor of their team, and and he'd bark out questions, pretty technical questions. And if you didn't have an immediate answer to him, you know, in that moment, he would give you a real dressing down in front of all of your co- your colleagues. So he sounded like a fantastic boss. But anyway, <laughs> she developed this real fear of him. And I got a couple months in after she'd started, I guess, his pep talk of some sort. He decided to invite her into his office, and he said, "So how are you getting on?" And she blurted out, near tears, she said, "You're the reason I can't stand coming into work every day." And he looked at her, and she looked at him, and they're, and they're really, like, both looking at, like, did she just really say that? And she can't believe she said it either. <laughs> but what was interesting is that, you know, you could stop the story and say, oh, Kainaz had great confidence in speaking truth to power. But actually, I think that's about her boss's confidence as well, because what's interesting is he asked her for feedback, and he made changes. And he started mentoring her. Every month they'd have a meeting and he would ask for feedback. And she said he improved hugely. He didn't become boss of the year overnight by any stretch. But what was interesting was that I think it took a lot of confidence for him to ask an office junior what she thought Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then to make changes because Mm -hmm. she said, you know, I'm giving you some feedback, but I'm I'm not alone in this. And, And I thought, wow. It does, take, it does take confidence to ask for feedback, but everyone I talked to who ended up having more confidence actually used that feedback to improve. And that, for me, is the name of the game. 
Yeah, that is a that I I love all three of those. I think are incredibly powerful. This notion that you call it self awareness, but what it really is is to mat, is, is the willingness to admit that I'm a flawed, yeah. not a flawed. I'm an imperfect human being, meaning that there's yeah. always something I can work on and improve, and I'm willing to hear that and yeah. not get defensive about it and do something about it. Yeah, like that takes yeah. enormous confidence not to get defensive. Yeah. I think that's great. So just to repeat, so that it's clear to everybody, the three big themes of how we should begin to think about confidence is asking ourselves, Mm. how am I showing, having and showing the courage of my convictions? Okay. Mm -hmm. Two, how am I showing or doing, going against the grain, meaning I am standing out as kind of the one and only. That takes an enormous amount of confidence to be able to do that, to call attention to that and give credit for that one. And three is this self-awareness. How am I willing or where am I willing to hear the hard messages and to take action on them? And I'm going to add without getting defensive about it. Yeah. Boy, if we if everybody would ask that of themselves, I think we'd get great insight. And if every manager giving feedback about needing to be more confident would ask those three questions, we'd have a lot better mm. feedback to work on. Yes, that's the key thing. If we started judging people on that, I think we'd have fundamentally have very different leaders. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Courage of my <laughs> convictions, going against the grain, and the willingness to hear and act on tough feedback. Okay? Yeah. Pretty good. All right. So if that's a better way of thinking about it, do you have tips for how we can go about actually developing confidence in those three spaces? I mean, so where do we begin? What can we do about it other than just changing our definition? Okay. All right. So there's a couple things to just start. And I got to, I've got to quote the lovely Shirley MacLaine, frankly. So, mm-hmm. so what I want people to do is just, first of all, realize that imposter syndrome or, you know, it's, it's normal. And I love, she has this great quote where she says, you know, in my twenties, I worried what everybody thought of me. In my forties, I stopped caring what everybody was saying about me. And in my 60s, I realized no one was talking about me at all anyway. <laughs> and what I love about it is that there is this sense of, you know what? Everybody has imposter syndrome at various points. That is the human condition. A sense of confidence. When people tell you to be more confident, I think one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is that it's a stable stable state of being. And actually, confidence shouldn't be a stable state of being because I'll be very honest. Like, I'm like you. I go to speak at big events. You know, Wanda, I know you do as well. And I'm decent. You know, I get good feedback, all of that kind of great stuff. But what's interesting is I'm pretty confident in that area. However, if you ask me to skydive, I shouldn't be so confident. I've never done it before. (laughs) And if I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that, I'm equally confident and then I would be mentally, I'd have a problem, right? <laughs> so I shouldn't be stable. So I think you should recognize that confidence isn't a stable thing, and it never should be. Um, see it instead as a specific skill shortage. So if you are talking with someone and they're like, well, I'm not very confident, um, then say, where are you not confident? Where do you not feel that? And what I find with my clients is they'll say, well, 
I'll say, they'll say, I don't, I don't like to give speeches or give presentations. I'll say, how, how big can you, have you ever spoken in front of three people? Oh, yeah. Okay, have you spoken in front of 10 people? Yeah, yeah, okay, well, have you spoken in front of 20? And then what they say is, oh, well, 20, mm, yeah, maybe, but I'll say 50. And what's interesting is they will start to identify specifically that it's about groups of 50 or more who are all clients, not peers, because they've already identified through this exercise that actually peers they can speak quite confidently to. It's 50 who are clients in these settings. And then we, like, we look at it and we say, that's just a specific skill shortage. You just need to get more experience and more practice doing that. Because actually, it's that imposter syndrome that makes you better. If you have no imposter syndrome, then you'll think you're great all the time. And how the heck do you improve from that? Because let's be honest, you probably aren't. I certainly am not. Right. <laughs> there are people who are great at everything all the time, and they shouldn't be. That's just not where we start. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I, I, for me, the, yeah, I love the expression that every expert, you know, was a beginner. Right. So really just look at it as a skill shortage is the first, you know, the first tip. Um, you know, I think a second tip is to, to recognize that there is a real inverse relationship between confidence and competence. And the research shows us, shows us that the more confident you become, the less you worry about your competence. And that scares me, actually, because we need people who are very skilled. But, you, you know, the more you the more confident you are, the more you rely on that, well, I've got this. Yeah, I've never done that before, but, yeah, I got it. I got it. That's going to be easy. <laughs> okay. so, it's not, so, so it's really interesting to me that those two things are actually inversely related. And the more com- competent you become the more you realize often how big the issue is and how it's always, always changing. Your topic is always changing. It's nuanced. It takes on new perspectives. New research comes out. If you're truly competent, sometimes your confidence will seem to diminish only because you realize how much bigger the topic is than anything you thought you knew originally. Does that make sense, Wanda? <laughs> that makes tons of sense. Um, that's not to say that... Um, it's just to say that we can't rest solely on our confidence that you're, even if you're an area of expertise, you're constantly adding to that knowledge in some way or another, or you will become move into the space where you're being too confident and incompetent. Um, I want to go back to your example about people who say that they don't, they're not comfortable speaking in public. This is one of the big ones I hear all the time. Mm. And I find people confuse, I don't like it with I'm not confident in it. And I think they're two very different things. Often when I talk to people, they just say, I don't like it. I can do it. I'm quite good at it. I can get better at it, but I don't like it. It creates a lot of energy, a lot of stress. I worry about it. I'm not so sure that that's such a bad thing. Like maybe you should be worried about giving a talk, an effective talk. And that's bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. And my statement to those is always... Well, you probably never will love it. So what? <laughs> like, so what? You know, you're always yeah. going to have to work at it and prepare for it and get your head straight. And that will probably make you give better speeches along the way. So I think that one's a really, that's an, it's a very interesting. And I love your idea of getting very specific about what is it that I'm not as confident about. And then how do I acquire that specific piece of information or a skill yeah, set? As opposed to yeah, the that whole drill down, bucket. drill down. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a great exercise. Okay. Mm, yeah, I think and, if I can share, can I share one last yeah. tip with you? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so conversationally, and I, I find this with a lot of the women I work with in particular, they're like, well, how do I show I'm competent if I don't want to blag about how amazing I am? <laughs> so I say, yeah. well, highlight your experience in the way you give your answers. So what I mean by that is before giving your opinion on something, say something like, well, when I was talking to the CEO about this, or when I was discussing this with clients, what I noticed was, or when I was reading a paper in, you know, in Nature Journal, what I know, you know, this came out, or when I was working on a similar project, and then give your idea. So I think what was interesting is that helps them kind of ground where this knowledge comes from. It's based on competence. Rather than me just saying, oh, I'm going to give you my opinion, you know, outlandishly and doesn't come from anything. So just highlight how good you are by showing them what you're doing to keep on top of your topic. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So we got a couple of great hints in here. One is recognize that the imposter syndrome, not feeling like you know enough, is the human condition. And it's really yeah. dependent upon a particular place where you need to improve a skill. So getting drilling mm-hmm. down, understanding what that is. The second is recognizing that the more confident you become, the less you think about your competence. So you are likely then to start over or, you know, missing nuances that you need to pick up or not acquiring new skills. And then this third one is what I call dropping into the conversation where your experience comes to bear. Exactly as you said, when I was blank, here's what Mm -hmm. I learned or here's what I saw or here's what I think or here's what I said. All of ways of showing that competence along the way. Mm -hmm. Okay, Suzanne, I have to talk about this fake it till you make it. I don't think I talk to anybody who doesn't use that phrase with me as the generic advice for how to get through absolutely anything, anywhere. What's your opinion about this fake it till you make it? So I'm personally not, I I think that it has limited utility to get you started. But what I often ask people to do is say, you know what, let's go back to how you got in the position where you've been asked to give that speech or where you've been asked to lead that deal or whatever. And what I find is when we talk about that, they're like, well, I led a project like that before. I'll say, you know, you weren't just gifted this opportunity for which you have to now fake it till you make it. You were largely given this because somebody else sees something in you. What is it that they saw? And what was that based on? They'll say, "Well, they saw me. They saw me give. They saw me give a good presentation, or they interviewed me, and we had a really interesting discussion about this." And then I help them go back to that place rather than feeling like they have to fake it till you make it. Because that, to me, faking it till you make it kind of feels like when I have to walk in high heels. I'm kind mm-hmm. of afraid of falling over, <laughs> and I'm very aware of myself. And I think the other thing is that it makes you always feel like you're kind of on the back foot Um, and then somebody's going to catch you out. But if you can drill into why was I given this opportunity, what did I do, What what was the competence I had to show in order to earn it, that helps me feel like I'm back on my flat shoes, meaning, okay, I I own this. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. Okay. So in effect, you're saying, what is it that I am bringing to this thing mm-hmm. that I'm about to do? Right. Yeah. Can I tell a story now, Suzanne? This is your, this is, your, but I have, this is one of my favorite all-time stories. This is a guy, he happens to be in financial services, 
And he had was fortunate enough to have a person who had picked him up to sponsor him, mentor him. And the this person was fairly senior, and he was just enjoyed him, you know, great rapport, all those good things. That's kind of the perfect sort of mentoring relationship. And his mentor, you know, sort of suggested that he, this young guy, go for a particular opportunity. And the young guy behind closed doors is like, oh, my gosh, I don't know anything. I don't know 20% of what it is I'm supposed to know here. And But if that mentor thinks I can do it, I am certainly not going to tell him he's wrong. <laughs> like that was his thinking mm. going into it. I'm not going to tell him how nervous I am or how incompetent I feel like I am. If he thinks I can do it, I'm going to go ahead. And he went for the job mm. and got the job. And then very cleverly, he said to the mentor after he'd accepted the job, why, you know, so I'm just curious, what is it that you saw in me that you thought would be successful in this job? Mm-hmm. Translate, why do you think I can do Yeah, why me? <laughs> and the mentor obviously laughed because he understood the intention underneath the question and said to him, look, I know you don't know A, B, C, D, E, and F, but you have this skill set and that's the most important skill set for me in this particular job because I've got people who already know A, B, C, D, E, F. Yep. And yes. with that, you can just completely relax and say, right, the thing that I am bringing to the party is X. And it's the yes. same as what you just said is drill down to what is it that gave you that opportunity? Mm-hmm. Um, or why is completely. it that somebody saw something in you? And use that as your basis for confidence and competence, not yes. anything else. Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like a lack of confidence to a certain extent, if it keeps you on your game and it keeps you learning more, it yeah. can be a superpower in its own, right? I mean, I think that's the thing. It gets you, keeps you better. And then I love that you have identified completely seeking feedback. I mean, the whole book, you know, I'm talking about, look for the feedback you're getting from people, and that will tell you where you're, you know, where, where you're competent and where you're not. Um, yeah. and, and that will grow your confidence. Because yeah. that's where true, the kind of flat shoes wearing confidence comes from, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. knowing that you've got a good base and you get that good base because people tell you you're really good at X. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I've done this before. Okay, excellent. I love it. All right, I'm Suzanne, in, we're almost out I'm of in time. my flat shoes. <laughs> you have two minutes, and I want you to talk about a time since the title shows that get out of the comfort zone. Tell mm. me about a time in one and a half minutes that you had to get out of your comfort zone. And what was key to your success? Okay. So I think what most people are always interested in is how I have this accent but live in a remote part of Scotland. And Mm -hmm. about two weeks after I graduated from a very small liberal arts college in Maryland, where I'm from, I got on a plane and moved to Europe. And I've been here now almost 25 years. Uh, I love it. But what's interesting is people often think that took a lot of confidence to do it. But actually, it took a lot of competence. I saved every bit of money that I could throughout the two years before I came to Europe. I read every let's go guide you could possibly have on Europe. I talked to every professor who'd ever worked with me saying, who do you know in Europe? Do you know anybody in Europe I could work for? Where did I do this? I mean, I just knocked it out of the park in terms of the amount of research and trying to make contacts that I can because it sounds like a very bullshit thing to do to get on a plane. Oh, she must have loads of confidence. But I didn't. I just did the hard work to prepare myself 
So that because when I landed, I had no job and no place to live. Um, but right. I knew I had the you know the research skills, and I could just try to make the most of you know temp jobs until I could find something that fit. And that's when I landed in a role. Uh, I ta- had to talk my way into it at Trinity College Dublin for the Center for Women's Studies. And you know, and that was that was a stretch too. But realistically, right. it was the competence that did it. I love that. We take a story, it's perfect. We take a story that looks like uber confidence, and actually what you did is to substitute (laughs) the confidence, the competence, the hard work. Even though you Mm -hmm. were nervous, you were confident of your skill set and the work that Mm. you've done. Suzanne, fabulous conversation. My guest today is Suzanne (laughs) Doyle Morris. The book we've been talking about is The Con Job, Getting Ahead for Competence in a World Obsessed with Confidence. And again, you can hear more from Suzanne's tips on her YouTube channel, Inclus, I-N-C-L-U-S, IQ, and you can get a free chapter of this book on her website at HTTPS, I-N-C-L-U-S-I-Q.com slash books.html. Suzanne, thanks for being a guest today. Thank you so much, Wanda. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 